Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry, and fair warning, we're both functioning off of about, what, three hours of sleep? Uh, I got a little more than that. Four hours? Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere in there. Somewhere in there. So your child had a nightmare? You drew down on him? <laughs> we're in a mood, yeah. so anyhow. We're going to talk about elder qualifications, as he said it, three. Three. Yeah, three. Part three. So, uh, we're just going to jump right into it. Uh, we're both, like I said, very tired, and probably anything else we say is going to be stupid. Er. <laughs> oh, my. Anyhow. Introduction. Introduction. Uh, we are, again, dealing with leadership. We, we've been going through this whole thing slow on purpose with regard to uh, qualifications, because if that doesn't get seriously... Uh, is he t- tapping on the window? We're going to restart this. No, let's just keep going. This is gold. This is here. gold? Oh, golly. So... No, I, see, I, no, my comment was we have... Last year, we struggled with our lawnmower person. Right. And I forgot about them until and, today. And, and I like, they're back. sent an edict that they were not to do it on Tuesdays when we tape. They must do it on another day. But they're here today dumping mulch right outside her window. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, right outside her window, right when we do this. So, <laughs> Jeez. Did you see that? No. He's throwing stuff at the window. We're going to restart this. No, let's just go. All right. (laughs) Anyhow. Systematic. Leadership. Yeah. We need good leaders. And if you're going to have good leaders, you have to have qualified leaders. That's essentially my introduction, right? Uh, Bad things happen when you have ungodly leaders, ravenous wolves come in. Um, The church ends up being destroyed. Godly leadership, uh, though, will lead to churches that stand firm. And I think during the COVID thing, we're starting to see some subtle ways that leadership is shown to be godless in the sense they it's like anything but gather, anything but worship together. Um, that's that's off the subject. But um, the point is that they a godly leader needs to learn to stand fast against the attacks both inside and outside the church. Uh, they end up providing a standard for which the other people can imitate, and ultimately, they point people to the great and good shepherd, who's Jesus Christ. Yeah, so, so far we've looked at the personal qualifications uh, and also the spiritual ones. So today we're going to round it out with the, all those qualifications related to family, um, and also what we'll just call uh, mental qualifications. So the family qualifications are probably the most debated yep. uh, in this. Um, the passages related to this are, are open to various understandings, um, and the consequences of taking one position or another can be a bit troublesome for some people to accept. But these are also some of the most important, we would argue, for our time, certainly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the last several decades have been a 
full-throated assault on the family and the home, uh, and this is going to create some real challenges to the church at large as they seek to raise up godly men to lead churches. Uh, frequently, we see people come into faith who have just a trail of, you know, wreckage behind them because they were raised in a Christless home with no values or standards. Um, you and I were talking about how the church needs to be ready to deal with an influx of, for example, new believers who are going to be coming out of, a, you know, twisted redefinitions of genders and being inundated with the idea of puberty blockers, gender reassignment surgeries, uh, all that stuff. It's going to be a real challenge. In yeah. fact, on that parenting podcast, I mean, we're starting to get questions like yeah. that now. Yeah, it's a real issue, and I don't think a lot of churches are ready to even know what what do you do if you get a guy, a guy who looks very much like a female due to surgeries and everything else, and they they've just come to faith. They don't know nothing, but they're wandering into your church. How how are you going to deal with them? Um, it's going to be really important. Yeah, I mean, ten years we were talking about it all in theory, but. It's not theory anymore. Nope. It's here. Nope. Um, so when we talk about what the Bible means when it comes to the qualifications of an elder with regard to his household, we're, we're talking about very serious issues, uh, and we don't want to diminish this in any way or think lightly of it. People are treating areas related to the family uh, far too casually, and we think it, that that is going to devastate the churches if there's not a, some wholesale repentance that takes place. We also think that People are marrying uh, without a thought of how holy of a work that is in the eyes of God. Um, you know, you, you don't mess with marriage. Uh, rather, you treat it as absolutely holy, and you certainly don't just discard it. The same with raising your children uh, or how you even view your children. It's a grievous thing to see how many Christian couples don't cherish the calling to be fruitful, uh, to have children, and then to raise children. In a similar way, it's very sad to see how too many take parenting and the purpose of raising children to be a matter of opinion. That's a real pet peeve for me, personally. Yeah, well, it, yeah. It's like they're going to come from their own personal center of what truth is rather right. than understanding the Word of God is authoritative. It's not asking their opinion. Right, right. Yeah. Um, well, and then the, the sheer mass of secular godless opinions within the church and how to be a parent is just staggering, but also yeah, yeah. Uh, devastating. And so if you haven't figured out by now, we take this section very, very seriously um, and very soberly. Um, in fact, I, I had a meeting today with a, a, a man in his 30s, and I, I just said, you know, where do you see yourself if the Lord is willing in the next five years? And the issue of elders uh, came up, and he was just real honest. He's like, at this point, I don't want to be one. He's like, I, I want to, first of all, really make certain that I figure out my children and be a godly father and, and lead them. I don't want to be, you know, later I, I become an elder or something, and then I end up having to step away because I didn't properly raise my children and, and deal with them in a good way. And I was really proud of I him. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a very it was a very heartfelt statement he made and uh, very honest. And I'm like, good for you. Uh, good for you. Um, so with that in mind, let's just get into the family qualifications. The first is, and again, these are complex, so you have to hang with us. He must be a husband of one wife. Uh, that's exactly what it says, the husband of one wife, both in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Now, on the surface, it seems to be rather simple, but it, it's not. Um, and so let, let us just give you a quick overview of how different people uh, take a position. 
One is that this is saying he must be married. That's It just says, well, therefore, they have to be married. A single man can't be an elder. Uh, another uh, would say that there can be no elder who practices polygamy. Um, another one, uh, position would be it means that you can only be married once in your entire lifetime. And then finally, it means that you must be a faithful husband to your wife. So those are the four common uh, views. And so it's tempting to pick a view that you and I like. It's like, well, which one is least difficult? But that's not how you approach the Bible. Um, your feelings and your culture are really not important when it comes to biblical interpretation. They may be impediments or challenges that you face, but you know, as Paul was going out into Asia Minor, trust me, he was running into all sorts of cultural uh, things. And then here he says, here's what a marriage looks like. Here's what parenting looks like. And, and so the same way with thinking about an elder, what does it mean to be a husband of one wife? The first point we would say here is that it's not a requirement that an elder must be married. The emphasis is not upon being married. It's uh, the emphasis is upon one wife not having that wife. Uh, in the time of this writing, in fact, it would just be the norm to be married. Um, it, it would be extremely unusual to ever meet a young man who's of marrying age who's not married. I, I, same thing with the daughters. It, it, we have exalted singleness to a cult in our, our nation. But in, in the day of the Bible, you just got married. That's part of what life was. Right, right. And so... The next view has a bit more of a, a merit, as polygamy was an issue in that day. And frankly, it's still an issue today in many areas of the world. Um, the word for one in that husband of one wife is actually in the emphatic position in the Greek, and that makes it key. It's emphasizing that oneness. Um, however, we would not see that that is still the primary meaning and purpose of the passage, and that it would be too narrow. And I think as Matt starts to describe the next uh, position, this will become clear. So we're not saying that it would say it's got nothing to do with polygamy. It's just that's not the primary focus of it. Right. So, yeah. So a third view then is that, you know, some people argue that this means that you can only have one wife in your entire lifetime. My, my prof, uh, uh, theology professor argued that. Did he? Yeah. Um, in front of a Sunday school class of, of many people who had been divorced uh, and uh, remarried and, and whatnot. So, yeah, but he, he included if they died. Well, well grammatically, uh, I mean, you can make that work, right? And that's how he did it. Um, <laughs> which I'm usually sympathetic toward. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and the reason why is because the emphasis there is upon one wife. One, again, is in that emphatic position. Uh, so commonly, those who hold to this view would say that if, if the wife were to die, uh, I guess like in the case of your professor, that anyone desiring to be an elder would remain, would need to remain single so that they don't disqualify themselves. Yeah. Um, the emphasis is upon the utter faithfulness of the man to only um, one woman. Ever. Ever. Uh, so the problem with this is that Paul has made it clear in Romans 7 that the death of a spouse makes the marriage covenant now null and void. And there, there's little purpose in remaining single once your spouse dies. And I mean, life would be very difficult. Yeah, you would not, you're not still married to them. Right. In fact, actually, I, I, 
I've had to counsel some people who have lost their spouse and um, they're like, well, she, she was my wife. And I'm like, if you want to stay single, fine, but understand this marriage covenant is gone. Biblically speaking, it's gone. You, she'll never be your wife again. When you go to heaven and you see her for all eternity, you won't see your wife. You'll see a sister in Christ. Right. And, and you got to get your head around that. It's, um, it's done. Yep. So what's, what's interesting then is, um, is as a result of that, Paul tells younger widows to remarry in First Timothy 5.14. Um, they, they are to have children and manage their homes. But here's where, again, it gets interesting because of what Paul then writes in 1 Timothy uh, 5, 9, chapter 5, verse 9, regarding older widows, just, just a few verses prior. Yeah, uh, yeah. He says, let a widow be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Um, now, the phrase there is the same phrase as for an elder being a husband of one wife, Um just with the male and the female there being switched, of course. So apparently older widows could be cared for by the church, and they would in turn serve the church as these official servants. Um, and this is why they had actual qualifications to meet, just like elders have qualifications, right. and deacons have qualifications. It was qualifications. actually like an office, uh, widows indeed. Right, a technical phrase. Um, so in verse 14 then, he tells younger widows, though, to get remarried. Uh, but older widows who wish to be officially recognized must only be married once— um, so the same younger widow would later be disqualified because she listened to Paul. So, <laughs> so I mean, he, he's saying, you know, get remarried. Oh, but by the way, if you get remarried, you're now disqualified from yeah. receiving help from the church. You may be destitute. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. No. Um, and so the, the point that we are making is that though grammatically uh, it could mean only one wife ever, it's important to understand that that is not the only possible understanding. Yeah. In fact, what you're really hearing us do is we're, this is what, if you're, you've got a faithful pastor, this is what he does. If you ever wonder what the heck they're doing. Um, <laughs> For that whole hour. Yeah. Um, yeah. That one hour a week. Um, th this is the kind of stuff you're wrestling with the text. You're trying to say, okay, here's the different ways that this could be taken. Um and so we need to just now work this out. And because we're removed by 2,000 years, different culture, things like this, uh, it, it, it takes work. So what you're really hearing is how, like Matt and I would work out this passage. So the fourth view, we would argue, is just the best um, because it fits grammatically and it also fits logically, if you will. Well, the flow of what's been yeah, going on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It speaks to the man being faithful to one wife. In other words, this would mean that he has only one wife at a time. It would not prevent him from remarrying later then if his wife were to die, because the focus is not upon the oneness, uh, the literal number one, but it's upon his faithfulness to the wife rather than that number. So grammar also supports this due to the nouns in this phrase. They don't have an article, um, the the, right. um, and therefore they're emphasizing, when you have the the, that's kind of awkward to say, it's emphasizing identity or specifying something, only one woman, in other words. Uh, but rather, when it doesn't have that, it emphasizes the quality or the character of the man. And so you, you could almost say it this way, that he is by quality 
devoted to one man, that there's a loyalty or a single-mindedness of devotion toward her. Uh, again, this also then removes the issue of polygamy. So that's why we say the polygamy is not the primary thing, but it also addresses it that because that, yeah. you can't have a single-minded devotion if you have two wives. Um, you, have you ever run into that in, in any of your travels, polygamy? No. Yeah, we, we, we actually had to deal with that in when I was in Cameroon because they had these guys called Fawns, F-O-N, and they're village kings, basically. Mm-hmm. And they have large compounds. They actually sit on a kind of cool African throne. And and their compound, it is pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> and they uh, they'll have 40, 50 wives. And one of them came to faith, and but he was the fawn, and so they felt he should be an elder, and and so now because culturally you have to hold him in respect, and he can't be the fawn and then not be an elder of the local church there, and and so I actually had to deal with this whole thing, and I was not a very popular man at the end of it, um, but again that goes back to our point about culture too. Culture can never control a text, uh, so. To summarize, an elder must be faithful to his wife and only have one wife. The exception of this is if his wife were to die, and then he may remarry, but still be faithful now to this new wife. Now, two quick points then that you need to think about. The first is that a man who commits adultery then is permanently banned from the office of elder or pastor. You, you, you can't ever be able to, after that moment, claim that you are a one-woman man, if you will. The second uh, idea is that depending on how you understand divorce and remarriage in the Bible, a man who divorced and remarried may or may not also be able to ever be an elder. So you guys don't know this unless you go to our churches and have talked about, but we hold an extremely conservative view on divorce and remarriage. So this is an issue that we have to address then when we're looking at potential elders. Yeah. And that... That's a good that that position right there makes sense in the passage because the entire flow of the qualifications is focused upon the man's character. Right. So a common way that you could translate it is just he needs to be a one woman man. Right? Which is how a lot of people then describe it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, next, uh, he must be then a capable manager of his home. This comes from First Timothy three four. It says he must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. Um, The rationale here behind this qualification is that there's a direct correlation between how he handles his house and how he handles the church, the household of God, if you will. Um, But it also seems to indicate that there's at least some sense that an elder is viewed by the rest of the church as a spiritual father. This this is why how a man manages his home, uh, views his marriage and handles his children are so important. Uh, the term manage carries the flavor of superintendence. It's it's having a concern for the oversight and the direction of the church. And so just as a man oversees the well-being of his home, so also that is what he will do with the church. So a quick example then, you got a guy who loves to just come home and check out. You know, that is not a man who manages his household well. He's all about comfort and refuge and whatnot. Um, And so you don't want that kind of a guy as an elder because it's the same attitude. Yeah, and people don't know how closely, I mean, we're watching 
even on something like a Sunday gathering, you know, what I'm looking for in elders is, are they one who, when they show up to the church gathering or an event even during the week, are they, they, are they one who just kind of checks out there? I mean, they just yeah. find themselves in a corner, they just gravitate toward their buddies or, or what, or are they one who proactively, because it's what they are and what they do, are they seeking and inquiring of people in the church, their well-being, their spiritual state, these kinds of things. It's it's just what they naturally do. They they shepherd, but without the title. Right. Um, well, and they've been doing that in their home. Their children aren't yes. left abandoned. But but also then how they guide their family in worship, too. I mean, I, I pay attention to the, the guys who are, won't sing or um, are always getting up. To, they have to go to the bathroom, not because they're old and they need to go to the bathroom, but they <laughs> right. can't just practice self-control or what, whatever it is that, that the guys that can't make it on church on time are always scooting out as soon as they can. All of those are just little indicator, indicators of people. But then when you go into the home, you realize the home is not working like it ought to. And that's just, so they're just reflecting that yeah, in, yeah. in the church. Anyhow, go ahead. Um, well, then part of this process deals then with his children. Um, and, and here the passage is not again, emphasizing the children, rather it's emphasizing the father. Just like before, it's not emphasizing the wife, it was emphasizing the husband in that previous qualification. So does this man bring his children into submission uh, in a dignified manner? Yeah, that, that's, that's the, the key, key phrase yeah. right there. Um, what's it say? Uh, his keeping his children under control with all dignity. Yeah. So again, there's not a, even some dignity, all. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there again, the the focus is on uh, some character aspect. Um, so he's not doing this through fear. He's not doing it through upbraiding the children. Um, nor is he doing it through manipulation or the the pleading of the children. Uh, rather, he's doing this as a godly man. Uh, his home should reflect children who are therefore under control. They show a, a submissiveness. There, there's a respectful attitude toward him. Um, and, you know, we, we've all seen homes where that, that is not the case. Um, so this means that the father needs to teach his children to hear his voice and obey, and everything we've been talking about in those parenting episodes, right, right. Um, that he is to be that key and primary actor in the parenting process. He can't just, you know, shove this off onto his wife or something. So in the Ephesian church... Uh, therefore, the standard for elders was not if the children were all believers, rather the issue was whether they were under control. Um, and that is important when considering, of course, this next qualification. Right. Titus. So that that's the family kind of qualification for the Ephesian church that he wrote. Uh, in Titus, though, he, it's a younger church in Crete. And so he, the next qualification is that he also has to have children who are faithful so uh, this is another debated passage. Uh, let's give you a few examples how this clause, having children who are faithful, is translated. Um, in the ESV, uh, it says this, uh, and his children are believers. Well, that's very different than faithful. Right. Um, so if you got the ESV, you're like, well, no, no, they have to be believers. Uh, the King James says, having faithful children. Uh, the New American Standard, which is what we use, uh, having children who believe. So, they, again, they went that way. The New English Translation that we really, really like, it's just a clumsy one, but it's a very accurate one. Again, having or with 
faithful children. So they're evenly split there, believer or faithful, and there's a reason why it's split. Uh, Two different takes simply on a Greek term. One is that the children must be Christians, and the other is that they must be faithful children. And and what you have to understand, uh, folks, is that the word can mean either one of those. So context is the way that you're going to decide that. And the challenge is there's not a lot of context here to work with. Um, So how do we decide? Well, again, the meaning of that word, pista, is key. The word is very flexible. It can mean believe or faithful. And what defines it, as I just said, is the context. So let me give you some examples in the New Testament of faithful. And and think about, you can't put the word believer in there because it, it, or believes, it doesn't make sense. He says, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in very little thing, a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. So there it's emphasizing that faithfulness versus an unfaithfulness. So in this case, in 1 Corinthians 4.2, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one must be found trustworthy or faithful. Now, here's some examples of believe in Acts 16.1. Uh, and he, being Paul, came also to Derby and to uh, Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So here the context makes it very clear that we're making a believer versus a Gentile or unbeliever. Yeah. Um, John 20, verse 27, he said to Thomas, this Jesus, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side, which is pretty grody because uh, it's into my side. <laughs> um, and not and be not unbelieving, but believing. So again, you would not call that faithful. You're, it's, right. it's believing. So how do we bring a solution to that? We would argue faithful is the better one. So let's let, uh, explain why. Uh, again, the word is anarthrous, which simply means it emphasizes, it doesn't have the article, it emphasizes quality rather than identity. So Paul is describing the character of the children, not the fact of their faith. Notice that children are to be characterized as being not accused of incorrigible or being unsubmissive. In other words, they're not in, they're not trouble, they're not creating problems. This fits the office, opposite of uh, faithful better than believing. Uh, the opposite of believing would actually be unbelieving or deniers of the faith. Uh, another concern is why Paul would uh, not have this same standard for the Ephesian church. Why, if that's true, nowhere is it mentioned that the children are to be believers in the First Timothy passage. But here in the Titus one, all of a sudden now he ramps it up and says, "You, you guys have to have only believing children." The Ephesian church, they just have to be under control. Right. Um, it just doesn't make sense that he would set two different types of standards. Yeah, so you could almost understand it as they're just—they need to be faithful to maybe the father's standards. Yeah, under under control of yeah. his standards and desires. And every one of us knows what that looks like. You all know about kids once they're able to get out from the house. You know, they start working or whatever, and they're all off leading a double life. At home, maybe they're nice kids, but everyone begins to know, oh, these are the partying kids or stuff like that. And and I grew up in the day where the PK, the pastor's kids, were some of the worst. Um, I mean, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, Next, and there's also the issue of men who have young children. 
um, if if now if this is the standard and it means to be a believer, then then no men with young children could serve as an elder. Um, now, if you practice paedo baptism and you think that through baptism that a child is saved, uh, then this isn't a problem for you. Um, but for those who say that baptism is for believers or that infant baptism gives them the sign of the covenant, um, but not the guarantee of salvation, like in Presbyterianism, for mm -hmm. example, um, then this is a real issue now. Yeah. Um, so some will try to say it only applies to children who are old enough to believe, but nowhere uh, in the text yeah. does it give that caveat. Uh, and it also doesn't give us a grace period either, meaning if you believe that, for example, that, you know, it's at the age of 10, what if the child at the age of 10 doesn't immediately confess Christ? Do we give them like a year to decide? Is yeah. there like this grace period there? It, it creates, so, yeah, people who say, well, I like it, it, I think it means believe. Okay, it just opens up a whole new set of problems, and um, it's very fun to watch them then wiggle around with those because it, it's not an easy one to deal with. Yeah. Um, another related issue then is whether this applies to the children once they even leave home. I actually had a guy <coughs> in seminary in a class with me, and I just raised my hand because we were debating this very issue, and he took a very rigid, they have to be believers. So I said, I'm, I'm just curious, if, if I was a pastor and I was now in my 70s, and I've got a 50-year-old son who's been out of my house now for 30 years, and he all of a sudden denies the faith. I said, what would you say? He says, you have to step down immediately as a, a pastor because obviously somewhere in your parenting you failed. I'm like, okay, <laughs> uh, there you go. Uh, at least he was being faithful to his position, but it was like, wow. Um, so if the question is, if an elder has a son who's at age 40 and he denies Christ, does he lose that qualification as elder? The word for children here is simply the word technon. It's, it's a generic word for child, and it can refer to children regardless of their age. Small children under the house of the father, uh, or, uh, household or in the household of the father, generations, or metaphorically even of the children of Israel or of God. So it's a very broad generic term. Because it's a generic word, the argument then is that a child of an elder must always be faithful or believing, no matter what his age or location. Another argument here would be that the two things a child should not be accused of are indicative of older children, rather a four-year, not a four-year-old. And, and that's actually a pretty decent one. We're not talking about a two-year-old. He's not incorrigible. He's just being two and he needs discipline. Um, the word, it would also be potentially acceptable if this word only referred to children, regardless of their ages. The problem is that the New Testament doesn't show it to be true. It ignores also the fact that this passage's emphasis is not upon the children, but upon the father. Is he raising his children, in other words, to be faithful? Are the children under his control growing spiritually? Yeah. Well, let us give some practical applications then. Uh, we would personally question a man's ability to hold the office of an elder if his son or his daughter left home at 18 and then just immediately from that point went into some kind of sinful living. Um, as long as a child is living within the home of his father, he is to be in subjection to him. 
Uh, he is to show proper respect and obedience to him. Um, and that is what we'd want to be examining. Uh, at the same time, if a man has several children and none of them are making a profession of faith, then we would see that something there is probably wrong or broken within the home. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, what, what's going on within that household that just keeps creating unbelieving children? Um, you know, we'd want to see that man to simply focus on his his own home rather than the church at that point. In a similar vein, we also encourage uh, an elder whose child, who has long since moved away and suddenly falls into a sinful lifestyle, um, we'd encourage him to step away for a time so that he can devote his time to that wayward child and, and to the family uh, and whatever needs might be there. So we also need to differentiate between the reality that children are, are going to disobey on occasion uh, versus they're one in a sinful pattern of living, um, you know, or in a certain type of sin. Yeah. So you can see, though, this is a gnarly one. <laughs> yeah. um, you really have to think through these issues. And again, you can land wherever you want. Um, understand your leadership in your church will have to have a position on it. Um, but realize that both sides carry consequences and and now it opens up other choices. So it's not a clean, easy one to deal with. Uh, let's move from there then. So those are the household ones. Let's talk about some moral qualifications. These are uh, these tend to be extremely broad. In fact, some I'm one of them that we would who would argue that they are overarching qualifications. They are detailed out by the other qualifications. Um, and, and I think it's a sound argument. But again, we need to think about what does it mean to be above reproach or without blame? Um, because we don't want that to make that a matter of opinion, but rather reality and truth. So it just simply says in both passages, you, the elder must be above reproach or blameless uh, in uh, Titus. This is a man who seeks to live, in other words, in obedience to God in all areas of his life. So the church needs to require their leaders to be of high moral quality. These these men are truly examples for everyone else, and, and they're going to be teaching everyone else. So that standard has to be set very, very high. Uh, the term in 1 Timothy means that there is no valid, that's the key word, valid charge against the man. It also carries the idea of acting in a dishonorable, ma dishonorable manner. Now, we again want to caution uh, that we do not make this to be one of perfection. We also need to make certain that the charge is truly valid, not merely a perception, because all the time right, right. elders, well, I think he was unkind, unloving on this. And it's like, or he was busy, or he's dealt with you too many times on this, and there's nothing more to be said. So, uh, but you call that unloving and therefore not above reproach. Also, understand that if a charge is laid against a man, then it must be universally applied. What we mean by that is that we don't create a special lifestyle that's only for the elder and no one else has to comply with it. And so the word in, uh, in Titus where it says blameless, this one is defined by the other qualifications. In other words, when you consider the qualifications of Titus, you cannot find an area within the man's life to level an accusation against him. So is he having children who are faithful? Is he uh, pugnacious? Is he this? Is he that? If you can bring one, a, a valid charge there, then he's not blameless. It's really that simple. So he, it means that he is examined, and what he ends up coming out is 
as being a man who's been approved. And so we see above reproach and blameless really as complementary or mm-hmm. synonymous ideas. Yeah. Then in 1 Timothy 3, 2, there's that qualification that he must be sober-minded. And this term carries a literal meaning of not being drunk with wine. Um, but there's also a metaphorical meaning, uh, which means just to be sober in judgment or sober in spirit. Uh, and we would say that's more the intended meaning. Um, this is a man, in other words, who is not hasty with his decisions. Right. Um, yeah. Um, he must also be prudent. First uh, Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.8. This one is very similar as well to that, that qualification of sober-mindedness. Um, the sense is just that of being thoughtful. Um, there's, there's wisdom. Um, it's exhibiting self-restraint, uh, particularly in decision-making. Yeah. Um, in other words, we're just describing a guy who's not all over the map, switching, flopping. Yeah, not, not controlled by emotions. Yeah, not thoughtless. Right. Um, similar to that, in, for, in Titus 1.8, he then says he must also be self-controlled. Uh, again, very similar to those previous two. This one is that a man does not Repl- uh, he's not relying on others to hold him accountable uh, to, a, to a faithful living. Um, the man's character is such that he's self-motivated to control his various appetites or desires and thoughts. And what stands out to us is how careful Paul is to make it clear that an elder is a wise, careful thinker and therefore conducts his life in the same way. Uh, in other words, he, he's not impulsive. There's, yeah. He's not unstable. Um, and he doesn't need others to hold his hand right. just to read his Bible. <laughs> you know, uh, he <laughs> right. doesn't have to, he, he's not always in your office talking about problems in his marriage because he, he's self-controlled. He understands he needs to be do, bringing these things under control. And so he lives accordingly. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then finally, we would say that there's what we'll just call mental qualifications. Um, this one involves certain skills, so you must be able to teach, uh, 1 Timothy 3, 2, 2 Timothy 2, 24. The word to teach uh, here involves three characteristics. Uh, he is skilled in teaching, uh, he is capable of teaching, and he is qualified to teach. Um, now, what's important on this one is that it does not mean that you must therefore be seminary trained. Uh, but it does mean that you have to have a good grasp of the Bible uh, as well as sound doctrine to point um, to the point that you're able to teach others. Because again, what, what is one of the what's the main role of an elder? It's to uh, fight against and correct false doctrine. But In fact, that's our next episode: is what are the roles and responsibilities okay, of an elder? Yeah. So we'll get into that. Yeah. yeah. So correct false doctrine, but also instruct in, in right and proper doctrine. Right. Um, but that does not mean you have to be, you know, seminary trained. Uh, it also does not mean that you have to be able to preach. Yeah. <laughs> um, like that's your gifting as, you know, you're a preacher. Some people are gifted in large groups and in preaching. Uh, others are maybe more gifted in smaller groups or even one-on-one. But the key point is that they can teach. And and the reason is very simple. Uh, it's because teaching is something that any elder is busy doing. All right. So a lot of uh, information there, but very important. This is probably the most difficult area of qualifications. Uh, We said enough, so we're going to end it. Um, Next time we will talk about the functions, the responsibilities of the elder. Uh, So look for that in the next episode. But until then, continue to tune in, join the conversation. We want to hear your thoughts on elders, uh, especially some of the things we just talked about. But don't forget to like, share, comment, 
rate, review, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and tell a friend. Thank you.